This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, the Mystical Positivist. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week we feature a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, January 3rd, entitled, To Create and Sustain a Habit of Open-Heartedness. The pre-talk publicity describes it this way. The meme of our time is obsession with human perfection. Focusing upon perfection, we soon find how pervasively we fall short of our high standards. Unconscious acceptance of this meme leads to fixation on our compulsive habits, faults, and failures, along with the existential despair that asserts compassion and love are simply words people use to manipulate one another. It leads to a gnawing sense of restlessness operating just below the surface of awareness. For some, redirecting attention towards drugs, video games, careers, or other distractions more or less succeeds in numbing the growing restlessness with the gulf between ideal and real. Another common strategy to address this restlessness imagines that its resolution will be found in the application of the latest quick-fix techniques of mind or body. The industries of personal growth, healing, and transformation focus upon consumers seeking immediate change. By doing so, these consumers strive to experience bliss, joy, and satisfaction by attuning themselves to ready-made truths linked to a variety of modalities and practices deriving from spiritual and therapeutic traditions. For such industries, quick fixes are the stock in trade, yet how many customers truly find uh, what they seek? Authentic training in the alchemy of the heart that transforms unconscious habits into food for a genuine expansion of consciousness requires time, commitment, sweat, discomfort, and persistence. It cannot be bought, but must be paid for. Join us for a discussion of how a sustainable habit of open-heartedness, in contrast to a habit of grasping after growth, might be created. After the talk, Rob and I will add some concluding observations from the studio, so please now enjoy to create and sustain a habit of open-heartedness with Rob Schmidt and myself, Stuart Goodnick. Welcome to Stuart Goodnick, um, one of the founders of Many Rivers Books and Tea, uh, and also with myself, one of the uh, two people responsible for running Taiyu Meditation Center, which is the owner and operator of this uh, institution that we're sitting in. Um, And welcome to me, um, (laughs) since I'm taking that responsibility for myself. It's good to be here. It's a, I, I honestly didn't expect a, a good turnout on the day on January 3rd, but uh, my my friend Trina here just pointed out to me that that uh, uh, I was mistaken, and it's, not the, and it's not the last time that that will be true. Um, but we'll we'll muddle along here. So thank you, for, thank you all for coming. Um, I'll just uh, get started by asking Stuart. <laughs> 
What's heart openness? What's heart openness? I thought you had a quote you were going to lead off with. Uh, I'm not going to lead off with that. I'll, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll get to that okay. later. I'll get to that later. Open-heartedness. Open-heartedness. That's the, that's the actual word I wrote. Open-heartedness, which I like better. And even even more interesting, what is a habit of open-heartedness? Mm. Yeah, that, well, one of the first things that comes up for me in that, that topic is, uh, I'll, I'll use a musical metaphor because I study the uh, shakuhachi, the Japanese bamboo flute. And one of the practices that I've been engaged with with my teacher recently has been just simply taking the flute and uh, blowing into it like a coke bottle to uh, make a simple sound without trying to um, do any sort of fingering but it's a progressive warm-up and in that warm-up we're beginning to sort of uh, put attention on different parts of the body but also to open up the head space the front of the head space the back of the head space the top of the head the uh, third eye area lift our chest. There's all these different things that we're doing as we, uh, you know, do this practice. But what he describes, the quality of the sound that he's looking for is egoless sound. Mm -hmm. So there's a conveyance of energy and there's a conveyance of sound that um, has a brightness and a positiveness and an openness that doesn't have the kind of sound of look at me or look at the wonderful sound I'm making or I'm doing it right or all the different ways in which we overlay some kind of uh, uh, personal intention over the production of the sound. And so when Rob asks what's open-heartedness uh, or what is a habit of open-heartedness, the first thing that came up for me is it is if I could take that uh, analogy of making the sound in that way and to speak about just taking action, just taking action in the world, it would be action that's arising from a spontaneous brightness or a spontaneous openness that's being very responsive to what's happening, but not so much colored by me trying to assert my expectations or my will into whatever situation I'm acting within. So that that's how I would start that. That's good. Any comments, questions so far? Okay, well, I'll, I'll just um, thank you for that. That's actually a nice, a ni that that metaphor of the music, mm -hmm. and and the way that your teacher tries to engage the body, the entirety of the body, the awareness of the entirety of the body, the awareness of the emotions, the awareness of the mind, and the use of the imagination. Yeah, and is important. Yeah, and, and just and just to, to add a slightly to that, with the musical metaphor and the training, it's like there there's still a place for the ego, but the ego is, uh, has a job. It's kind of like uh, uh, you know when we have dogs, uh, you know, and they they don't have anything to do, they 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 get kind of cranky and act strange. So, but if you give a, a dog a job, then it can be you know uh, it can feel very fulfilled, and, and the ego is kind of like our dog. So the job of the ego is to maintain the openness. It doesn't have to control the result. It doesn't have to make anything particularly happen. It doesn't have to be concerned with how it looks or what it's doing. It's got a job, like a you know, like a happy, well-adjusted dog. It can, you know, guide my attention to maintaining an openness in my body, as Rob was saying. You know, attention in my body. Uh, it can help do the sorts of things that are required to maintain a habit of openness 
and while the ego is doing that and is feeling engaged, then it's occupied. And, and then I don't have to be concerned as a kind of a complete being with the result, but simply to be present in a situation and to allow whatever happens to unfold, but to also be uh, exquisitely responsive to what the needs of that situation are. So the, um, what uh, you reminded me of, as you, as you said that, Stuart, is that uh, is a picture of, uh, of the founder of Thai Meditation Center in the corner, which you can't get to right now. And I was going to put it out there, but then our friend uh, gave us this, this image of um, this uh, deity, um, Bodhisattva, and I thought, it's so lovely and... and to me, it evokes some of the uh, features of heart openness that I wanted to talk about tonight, so I decided to leave it there. But his picture's over there, and um, and he was someone that um, I lived with for 20 years and had deep instruction from in this issue of heart openness. And one of the things that he reiterated many times is that my heart would, at various points in my um, in my practice, my heart would break open. So it wasn't necessarily um, a uh, a pleasant moment at first, but it was raw, a raw and um, it's like like you like you suddenly come to the to the edge of a cliff and you look over this you've been hiking all day long and you look over this incredible landscape and it's um, breathtaking in its complete perfection so that's that's what he would point to um, as this breaking of the heart and he used to strongly advocate that I try to keep that openness almost as if well not almost as if imagining that my heart that something that the cover over my heart maybe my heart wasn't broken but the covering that normally resides there would be broken and and it's and you know it would the sense would fade over hours and days etc oh, thank you please uh, Please come and pour. So the sense would fade, but but um, but the but his his admonition was to was to hold it open as far as hard as I could, as with as much determination as I could, which is with as much strength and persistence as I could. And that feature, thank you. Um, that feature reminds me, um, and that's why I'm so glad you you used the uh, analogy of your of your um, Shakachi teacher, um, because, uh, and I should mention that the Shakachi is not an easy instrument to play. In fact, just to make a sound on it is actually really, for most of us anyway, it's really hard, and um, and so. To play it like a coke bottle is actually kind of how you how you play it, but can you create beautiful music with just a coke bottle? Well, can you create 
that landscape, that that access to the vast landscape of stark beauty that is one aspect at least of heart openness that's one of the things that that I want to invite you to reflect on and consider because we haven't even gotten to the habit part yet. Do you have a question? Um, This is so exciting. Um, Oh good. It sounds like what I would call a a celebration of vulnerability. Yes. Uh And it's like um, giving the action a chance to do itself instead of you doing the action, mm-hmm. giving the word a chance to speak itself instead of you speaking the word. So it's it's a more partnering relationship. And um, Rian Eisler wrote the, the introduced the dominator model. You know, it's moving. It feels like you're moving away from that dominator model into into the partnering model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I think the the question of vulnerability and that 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 word is an interesting one because um, different people in different traditions will interpret it differently. Uh, uh, we've had some uh, discussions with friends of ours, uh, you know, uh, out of uh, like the Tibetan tradition, who don't like that term because it it suggests a kind of um, uh, I don't know a, a a giving up of uh, maybe responsibility or a, a uh, um, and when and so we have to be careful how we use it and what that means. Just like a word like surrender has a, a certain kind of valence that um, it doesn't mean defeat. Being vulnerable uh, means, as, as as you were saying, trying to be exquisitely sensitive to uh, what's happening. To be you know really to allow yourself to be touched and. What you know? What you know? Kind of going off of this musical analogy uh, we were describing earlier. The when I was describing the, that the ego can kind of keep the portals open, if you will, or to keep keep our uh, uh, the body, our heart, our mind in a particular configuration, such that we can be open. Then we don't have to do, or we don't have to, uh, to, to use your word, dominate or assert, but uh, allow uh, uh, a natural presence to come through. And what's interesting about that is what that suggests then is that that open-heartedness is not something that we do; it's an effect. So it's an effect of something else. So when we talk about doing, and this is how we would get into. Uh, uh, the idea of habit. When we talk about doing, there's there are things that we can do to um, uh, allow a uh, openness. There are things that we can. So doing, it does make sense to say that there's something to do, but but what we're not doing is open-heartedness. We are, we are creating the conditions for open-heartedness to be present, and that and that distinction is important because a lot of Conversation around spiritual practice uh, uh, these days certainly I don't, I don't, I probably has always been the case is focuses on technique you know it's like things I can do in order to get this or things I can do for this or that and 
we're trying to shift that emphasis because the um, the result that we seek is not something that we do. It's something that happens, but there are things that we can do. You know, to use an analogy that our our, our teacher would uh, use sometimes, it's that um, you can't make the lightning strike, but you can take a lightning rod and climb up to the highest hill around and hold it up in a storm. And so you're not going to make that spark happen. Uh, however, you can create conditions by which that possibility is more at hand, and yet we can never do it. <laughs> we can never uh, take. We can never uh, control that 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 moment in which uh, we are open and vulnerable. It's something that happens, and so the the challenge with practice is to explore what one can do in order to allow for that openness to be more possible. Yeah, so, um, you know, on the face of it, open-heartedness sounds fabulous. Who wouldn't want that, right? Um, and yet, it is also incredibly dangerous because people get hurt when their hearts are open. And we all know examples, probably from our own lives. Um, uh, sometimes children are hurt and um, and they don't have the defenses depending on their age and circumstance they don't have the defenses um, to defend to to protect themselves we adults for the most part have developed a very uh, considerable armamentarium each unique to to each person um, but um, that, that's r the reason why my teacher used to say you have to hold it open because we create the habit have a, have a seat looks like somebody's sitting there there's one right here so I didn't want to walk in front of everybody I'm sorry I'm late I had to work late that's okay <laughs> there's no blame so so the um, there's danger because we can be hurt and um, we can talk later about one of the effects of creating a habit of open-heartedness is how we, we digest um, both positive and negative things that come into our awareness when we've created that habit of not relying on defenses all the time. But, but first we have to, we have to go through the, the um, work, as Stuart is pointing out, of creating conditions such that the lightning can strike, the, the, the glance, sometimes it's just a glance, and we're open. Sometimes it's more, it's a word or a phrase, or someone beating on our door, or, you know, a million, a million unique things, because that's the thing about real heart openness is that it is unique to each moment. It is not a cookie cutter. It's not a. Um, it's not a shape that we may ever have seen before, and we ha we may have a lot of experience with heart openness, and yet when it comes again, 
knocking. That knock has a different tone to it. It's on steel or instead of wood or whatever whatever metaphor you want to use to understand it, but it's unique because the circumstances of the moment in which it if we're if we're working on it, we're inviting it in are different. The circumstances change depending on on where we are. And so um, so part of the creation of a habit of um, open-heartedness is the uh, commitment to and reinforcement of a welcome to that heart openness no matter what it brings which is actually very scary it's very it's very um, uh, dangerous I could read the, this quote now. I, I've been reading this lovely book by this guy, Stephen Jenkinson, called Come of Age, A Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. So he's, he goes around uh, and does uh, talks and workshops and stuff like that. And um, he's describing having gone someplace to do a workshop. And... Um, he takes a ferry I'll, I'll, I'll read a couple of different things so he's on a ferry ride to get to the place to the center where he's uh, going to give this workshop and he was sitting across from two young people who were heading to the session the woman's father had just died unexpectedly and she was pregnant and awash in grief she was fatherless for the first time in her life and her child would only hear of a rumored grandfather and she sat there on the ferry seat awash in the great mystery of the thing her man solicitous and hovering just as the ferry eased out of the berth the intercom crackled with a pre-recorded message that was mis misshapen but timely it began this way this is an important safety annou announcement from the transit authority and though no one asked me to do so I finished the announcement before the recording could loud enough so loud enough only so that the two people across from me could hear it. I leaned over and I whispered, there isn't any. That's the important safety announcement. <laughs> There's no safety. <laughs> so, um, um, that's, that's something that often gets neglected when people are selling um, experiences. And um, it's a it's a distinction from um, what I consider to be uh, deep spiritual work, which which relies upon the cultivation of that persistence that I talked about earlier. So it doesn't just arise in a moment, a weekend, a uh, a course, but it is something that we develop and continue to develop and continue to commit and recommit to over time to be able to op to have that capacity when the universe comes knocking to say yes thank you whatever you have to say I'm ready for it whether it causes grief 
whether it uh, elicits um, you know rolling ecstasies or something that partakes of both it can t- partake of both remember there's a there's a grief about the um, the exquisiteness of moments of heart openness because it'll never return that moment and you can focus on that and that's okay and you can uh, focus on the um, sense of connection that emerges in that heart openness where there may be thoughts saying you're you and I'm me but there's also a a genuine carrier wave present and it was always present of course but we just didn't see it or feel it or apprehend it in the way that those heart open moments invite us to do so I'm going to continue with a musical analogy since I have uh, many of them right now I hope you brought your instrument by I the did way. <laughs> very good we'll end with that okay um and that's that um, uh, another area that uh, I've been working with with my teacher is just just the the quality of sound that comes when you are right on the edge of losing it. <laughs> so with a shakuhachi, it's a the, it's really easy to lose. Yeah, it's, really, it's, it's a very sensitive instrument in terms of the airstream, and so you know my teacher has been trying to get me at the end of a note, you know, to move the shakuhachi down. Well, when you do that. You know, suddenly the, you don't have as much control in the airstream. You can get a very, very uh, sensitive, subtle, liquid sound when you do that. And it's terrifying from the point of view of the part of me that wants to be in control of, you know, control of what's happening. And yeah, my teacher says it's, it's, you know, for the audience, it's actually more interesting because uh, they'll, they won't know what's going to happen. You know, they'll be kind of on the edge of their seat because it's, it's like, uh, uh, they, uh, you know, that you almost have this vicarious thrill that uh, what's going to happen. And and so we respond to that vulnerability with a kind of a care that we don't respond with things that are sure in life. And so to be able to sit at that edge of uh, possibility, and that means possibility of uh, something higher or, or, or falling off the edge, but to sit at that edge uh, not only for ourselves creates this openness and this, uh, this real sense of uh, sensitivity and vulnerability, but for the people around us, they feel that as well. And it, it touches something in uh, the people who are listening to that. You can feel that in other forms of art, you know, like uh, if you see a comedian on stage who's uh, just right at the edge of losing it, <laughs> and, and, you know, and then they're oscillating between really uh, nailing it and losing it. It's, uh, you know, you feel, you know, you're, you're kind of like, your heart's kind of going out, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're uh, you, you, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and similarly, in, in just everyday life, 
in uh, when when we have moments of authenticity with friends or loved ones. There's a vulnerability and an uns- you know you don't know what's going to happen because this person's actually being honest. <laughs> you know, then then it, it it pulls something out of us and we and we feel touched at a much different level than when everything is safe, certain, and controlled. And music it, that's controlled, music that's certain, uh, just sounds very um, uh, kind of static and uninteresting. It may even be technically really good. Uh, you know, it may be very precise, but it doesn't move us in the same way that something, even like a simple folk song, might move us if we're we're kind of feeling the uh, edge of possibility in every note. And and so I think when we talk about vulnerability in this sense, you know, we're really pointing to this realm of life that's both uncertain but uh, you know filled with possibility and the possibilities aren't safe because the possibilities may not be you know for there to be possibility there has to be possibility of falling off the edge as well as uh, you know climbing to a whole new level and that's what keeps it interesting and and that's it that's what we are really when we talk about that kind of way of living even in simple moments we are talking about a kind of artistry and when we when you speak about artistry we all understand what artistry means because we have lots of metaphors for artists who spend a lifetime perfecting their art and if you ask any artist um, uh, at any point they'll always feel like they're just beginning and they're and they're just they're they're really just starting and it's that kind of freshness and that kind of commitment to the art of living that we're Offering when we use a term like open-heartedness here. So, um, I'll, t- I'll recount a story, uh, an incident that occurred very early on in the existence of this store. Right, I'm sitting right where, uh, more or less, where a, a guy who represented himself. It was a it was a group, uh, a friend of ours, a, a student of our teacher's teacher, hmm. um, was giving a talk. Her name is Patricia Elizabeth, and uh, and she was giving a talk about the work she does with uh, doing readings for the dead. I think I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's what and then caregiving. She had just care- written a book on. That's uh, right. She uh, just written a book on caregiving as well for people going through the process. So um, so right about where I'm sitting, there was a there was a guy there who, when he started to speak, represented himself as the Apostle Peter, and he wasn't. He was serious about it and um, he really wanted to be heard right and so I know that several of the people in that uh, group meeting later told me and I could see it in their body language at the time they were like you know ready to leap on this guy if he got physically dangerous right which was a possibility you know it's not it's not um impossible but what I want to point out um, in this story is the behavior of our guest speaker Patricia Elizabeth she was completely unruffled she let the guy go on and then after he sort of ran out of steam after like five eight minutes or something like that she would say 
Um, thank you. Um, I'm really um, uh, wondering if you're done because you know I wanted to get back to the stuff that I wanted to talk about. Are, are you done for now? And he would sort of you know go like that and then stop, and she'd go on. And she, he he interrupted her you know two or three times like this. Each time a shorter and less aggravated amount of energy was expressed, it's, it's or so it seemed to me. And the reason I bring this story up is because she had training by spending so much time with people going through uh, the dying process and caregiving. And in doing that in the context of her commitment to spiritual practice that was decades old at that point. Um, she had no fear. It was just... I mean, she did later say to me, you, you grow some good ones in Sebastopol or something like that. <laughs> and we never saw the Apostle Peter again. <laughs> but um, but I, 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 bring, I bring this up because, because I want to make the point that in addition to what I was alluding to before, when, when you're first getting this sense of you know, oh my God, this is a poignant moment of universal clarity. There's also the training, with the training and with the persistent cultivation and with the um, practice in generosity to oneself and others, then that open-heartedness creates a way for extraordinary things to become ordinary and ordinary things to become extraordinary as well so um, so it's not just about cultivating some kind of peak moment or something like that I mean those are nice granted um, and and I wouldn't deny anyone the peak moments that they've created and uh, I don't know if earned is the right word but uh, but helped invite into their lives so um, so no problem and yet my view, my view of spiritual practice is that in fact it's that capacity to allow the open heartedness to be to become ever more present in an unremarkable way in our lives that it gives us the, the ability to um, to give our attention without fearing the other even though they don't know how to act very nicely or they're doing the best they can and it ain't very good by some standards you know uh, so so that depth that depth and that's that quiet strength is just so precious and rare and beautiful and that's that's another aspect of this that I that I've, I've wanted to uh, convey here tonight but it is the the product uh, you know it, it becomes available through this persistent cultivation maybe you want to talk more about some of that well first I want to see if there's any questions at this point um, you're talking about the place where courage 
is learned and subtlety is learned and where art can happen mm -hmm. I'll go with that with the, with the where, where art can happen in the sense of you know um, my teacher used to say used to in fact I'm working on, on, on a book on, about this um, a work of, a book of his uh, uh, talks and writing and and I've been going back and forth on the title because he loved to talk about what he called living life as a work of art and what he meant by that was this capacity in the midst of the unexpected the dangerous sometimes the pedestrian at other times the ordinary um, to be able to craft his response to all the different circumstances such such that he was heart open capable of authentic and skillful response and that skillful response is is kind of what I would call art excuse me art so um, um, so I so I'll agree with that with that um, formulation because um, you know, we think we think of art as this thing we do we do outside ourselves. It's on a canvas. It's you know a statue, and not that these aren't art, right? Of course they are. And and it's and when we do that, when we create those expressions, they are they are indisputably art, depending on how we go about it. And we can do that in the midst of daily life simply by how how we raise a cup of tea to our lips. Simply by how we look someone in the eye and say thank you, thank you for sharing this connection with me, with with that kind of open-heartedness. That's um, that's so precious, so beautiful, so rare, mm -hmm. and yet always present and available so I uh, it, it occurs to me to talk um, slightly more technically because I like technical stuff and uh, so you'll have to bear with me um, but, uh, but he's an artist too yeah. you'll hear later <laughs> but the, the there's there's uh, two lines here one, one point I wanted to make is that, that the Going back to the artistic uh, model for a moment, you know, artists will spend a lot of attention on what, from an ordinary perspective, seems like very uninteresting stuff. So, for instance, you know, with my flute, I may spend a lot of time with my teacher on the shape of the sound, and it gets into these dimensions that we were talking about earlier about. Uh, where it resonates, it's uh, whether it's uh, egoless or not, and things like that. But there's also just mechanics about the shape of sound. But uh, you know, graphic artists, painters, will spend a lot of time on you know uh, strokes and color and tone and you know all, all these different things. And and for someone who's not 
interested in those sorts of things. It, you know, it's, it's, it'd be like uh, uh, crazy making or mind, you know, it's like mind numbing to go to that kind of detail. I see this in the shakuhachi world because there's a lot of people who want to learn music and they want to they want to kind of accumulate a repertoire of different pieces to play and there's people who have learned lots of different pieces of uh, Japanese traditional music and yet when I hear them play uh, they're okay but they're not they're not what I hear from my teacher you know it's, it's like I don't feel moved in a way that they're accomplished technically because they've accumulated something they've gotten you know um, but a real artist focuses on the simplest things and so when we offer the possibility of art in life we're talking about focusing on some very elemental things in the way that our uh, psychophysical organism constructs our world for us and so when we speak about practices of various forms of meditation meditation practices are ways in which we begin to put attention on the brush strokes the way we paint the world that we live in and it's only by putting deep attention on those brush strokes that we can begin to see both what we have been doing and what we might aspire to do and and so this use of attention to the subject of the art the medium of the art is uh, an important part of this discussion and so when we speak about the artistry of life the you know the first step is to uh, develop a habit of bringing attention to our lives and to see what it is that we are doing both at a level of thought at a level of feeling and at a level of uh, you know just tension in the body to create the world that we live within and without judgment that's the key yeah. that's the key thing so that's that's the the meditation uh, imperative at least in in our in our you know teaching and training um, it's to look at all those things to be present to all those things without judging them in any way because only then um, can we actually see what they are if we're judging them we're not we're projecting onto them in some way shape or form so that's the you know that's that's the beginning step right and then and then the uh, to be a little more technical in the terms of our, our our particular tradition you know we look at our uh, lives or our, our, our system our uh, psychophysical organism is divided into three centers there's a, uh, a mental center there's a feeling center and there's a body center so you know that's that's not a lot of traditions have that kind of uh, trifold breakdown and for us we look at the question of vulnerability differently in each of those centers so in the um, mental center uh, to be vulnerable is to accept because the habits that we have in our minds often are to reject so something happens we reject it uh, we well, frame we, a thought we classify it in some yeah. way that, that isolates it from us right. and so puts it out there right so acceptance is a way of loosening that in the feeling center uh, we use the term surrender because uh, when we surrender what we're doing is laying our weapons down we're not fighting 
and so much of from a feeling level is uh, there's a kind of a defensive posture that we adopt to live in this world that is, is like a protection but to uh, be vulnerable we have to surrender that or delay that down and then ultimately in the body the, the, the word we use for vulnerability is relaxation when we're vulnerable we're relaxed we're not holding tension and so you can see that you know mind heart and body then has acceptance uh, surrender and, and uh, relaxation as kind of key ways of accessing the um, this spaciousness that we've been talking about and and the key point here is that what we find with uh, our meditation work is not so much to learn what to do but it's more to learn what not to do so when we begin to bring uh, a deeper attention to the functioning of our mind or the functioning of our heart or the functioning of our body what we discover are the doings that are going on below the level of our conscious attention the uh, habits of um, rejection uh, that the, the habits of defense the habits of tension in the three centers and and so really a lot of uh, practice is and uh, and attaining to the vulnerability we're talking about is a practice of undoing rather than doing which is why we, we try to say that it's not something you can grasp after or it's something that you can uh, do because you're already doing quite a bit uh, you, I mean, we're all doing too much as it is and so the uh, art of practice is to uh, learn to undo both in our minds our hearts and our bodies so that there's an openness or a possibility for us to be available for life as it's happening undefended undefended and and the the doing part is you know going back to what we were saying earlier you know for the, so the ego has something to do is to engage in the habits of attention so that we uh, we remind ourselves when we see our state of doing and we can gradually begin to release that state of doing in each of the different centers and explore and experiment with what life feels like when we engage in that way when we engage with not doing without you know judging without uh, resisting without tensing up when something new happens we can we can do these experiments and these experiments can be large or they can be small and in the context of a spiritual school and a training and a community there's lots of opportunity for different kinds of experiments and our daily lives gives us these kinds of experiments that we can do the trick is simply maintaining the presence of uh, awareness to be reminded that that's what we're doing and that's part of where the uh, the long game comes in here because like uh, any artist you know uh, no one expects to go to a weekend workshop on uh, guitar and to come out as uh, Andre Segovia you know we just don't we expect that if we're going to do that we have to have a long-term engaged commitment to moving in that direction and it begins with plucking a string and listening very intently to how that that sound vibrates any comments, questions at this point? Yeah. I'll share a couple things. 
um, when you were talking about um, making ourselves vulnerable, when you were talking about this earlier, uh, I was thinking about the word courageous, mm-hmm. which as I understand it, the root word is the French word for heart. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Courageous. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just came from teaching music. I teach singing and songwriting, oh, spoken word. And, um, and it's a lot about the breath. And I was thinking, I don't play shakuhachi, I certainly don't, but um, it sounds like it's a lot about the breath. And when you said you moved the shakuhachi, I didn't see you move your, yourself, I I saw you, and I I was thinking that generally, when people move their chins down, and I'm letting this happen now, it changes their voice, (laughs) and also changes their breath. and you do that with shakuhachi too. You oh, you know, do. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. for sure. Yeah, yeah. To, in order to get some of the uh, uh, flat sounds, you uh, move the you know chin in. I'll be noticing that when you play later. Yeah. And I frequently say to um, people who call themselves my students, although I feel like I learn from everybody too. Um, everyone's my teacher, but um, that you can ha- be technically perfect, but if you're not singing with your heart. If you have one person doing it all technically, the other person doing it technically from their heart, the person who's singing from their heart, that's going to move everybody, possibly to tears even. Mm-hmm. And I had an experience earlier today where someone was so kind, it just made me cry. And I loved it. <laughs> um, so I probably thought of other things too, but that seems like enough to share for now. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, it's for welcoming me as I was late. Got <laughs> <laughs> it. No blame, as I said. That's a nice phrase I have from the Buddhists. No blame. Jim used to be a Buddhist, but now he's he's he's, he's without blame, giving it up. <laughs> That's who I got it from. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, um, so, uh, but uh, but I want to return to the point that that. Uh, more, more sometimes than we realize, it's making a commitment and sticking to it in the face of whatever arises. I was, uh, I was given this by our friend uh, Nan Kohler, you know, this beautiful image that she just completed. She also gave me the, um, the 100 syllable mantra of Vajrasattva. This is Vajrasattva here. And, and so I have the um, Sanskrit syllables, but I also have her, her um, translation of those. And it's, protect me, remain firm in me, grant me satisfaction, increase the positive, grant me all Siddhi powers, show me all the karmas, that is activities, make my mind good. <laughs> That's, I'm literally reading it. Ha 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 ha. And then, uh, uh, actually, there's only four. I think I did it five times. <laughs> the four immeasurables, re- referring to the four immeasurables. Blessed one who embodies Tathagata, do not abandon me. Make me one with you. So that the reason I wanted to read that is because this is a um, it's something I, I did some research, which you suggested I do online um, about um, the use of Vajrasattva practice 
and this is this this hundred um, syllable mantra is what you do before you start your meditation practice. You are creating and um, reinscribing the commitment to the practice when you do that. Protect me, remain firm in me, etc., etc., etc. And that's and that's this, it works the same way for this. Uh, as I and I think Stuart experienced it uh, from our teacher's teaching, which is to um, at every opportunity to refresh that commitment, and that could be, you know, relatively mechanical at sometimes. Um, it could be uh, like you know I, I can remember. <laughs> all kinds of horrible embarrassing horribly embarrassing and um, not pleasant moments and I would still use those as reminding factors to recommit to um, to the practice and then then when the heart openness hit me like a bolt of lightning um, I wasn't thrown off I mean it was a little thrown off Come on, be fair. Mm-hmm. But but I was immediate. I could immediately find the place where that's okay, and where I could remember to strive to keep the heart open and not allow it the the ego's natural tendency to uh, quickly cover it over. So so that 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 this this. Um, this feature of commitment maturing into persistence is really um, crucial to me. And that's what allows for the sort of things that Stuart was talking about to be effective in creating the conditions so that the, um, the danger of open-heartedness can be approached. I mean, one of, one of the things you know Robert Ennis used to say is is that if you if you try to do this outside the context of or without the help of someone who who has experience with it it can be dangerous you can you can get hurt people get hurt there's no doubt about it and yet it can also be done and as i'm further suggesting it can also lead to this expression of heart openness, like I was talking about in this, with the story of Patricia Elizabeth and the Apostle Peter, you know, that kind of that kind of skill or apparent skill, I mean, it looked like skill to me, and and I was appreciating the skill because of my own striving to cultivate that skill, that sort of skill that she was demonstrating. Yeah. And, and it's fair to mention that uh, her her teacher was uh, one of our our teachers uh, teachers, and his dynamic range in terms of intensity of expression and situations he would create made the apostle Peter actually seem pretty uh, pedestrian. <laughs> but um, for and and that in a way that's that's partly how uh effective training works is we we br- learn to broaden the range of experiences and situations um uh that we can 
handle with just bringing our attention to it and, and uh, bringing our hearts to it and being able to say yes. Um, and a good, a good spiritual um, teaching teacher community situation is one that gives us a diversity of these kinds of experiences. And ideally, you know, the skillful means are are found in being off balance just a little bit most of the time, but not thrown off, you know, not, not thrown off the horse, but basically just kind of ideally being in this kind of uh, uncertainty, like being at the edge of that note I was describing, you know, um, where you don't, you don't know if you're doing it right or doing it wrong, and you're, you know, you're, you're just kind of feeling on the edge, but it's a good edge, and uh, a good uh, teaching situation is one that keeps us on that edge most of the time, uh, as often as possible, which is why, you know, being in spiritual communities or being among a spiritual community that's engaged in this kind of practice can be useful because we have, we're, we're just reminded more frequently that this is what we're doing. It's um, the seductiveness of uh, ordinary life is um, always kind of helps helps us forget this kind of uh, engagement. And I know that because I, I work uh, in the corporate world, and uh, the corporate world is not one where uh, uh, it's it's structured to. <laughs> Remind Come on, you to be open understatement. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, to be fair, you know, there's even sort of moments. Uh, well, of course, <laughs> in the corporate world, where people because, are trying to do things differently because but, they're all still alive. Yeah, more or less. They're still breathing. <laughs> but but the but the reality is that you know daily life is a way of you know just kind of focusing us on our uh, immediate needs for survival. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, January 3rd, entitled, To Create and Sustain a Habit of Open-Heartedness. We will conclude after the talk with some remarks recorded in the studio. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, January 3rd, entitled, To Create and Sustain a Habit of Open-Heartedness. We will conclude with some additional remarks recorded in the studio after the talk community that can keep you reminded that we're engaged in this practice and we're engaged in this art is important for maintaining a long-term consistent practice because we need that we need that support we need we need the help of uh, our sangha or those around us to remind us that uh, this work is important because we can forget that 
even after we practice for a long time, you know. Uh, 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 it does happen. Yeah, we can't forget it. And so a, a community is important for keeping that uh, alive. You know, some, uh, I've reflected on, you know, when I think about my relationship with my spiritual teacher and think, you know, what what was it, you know, if I were to put it in a nutshell, what was it that uh, I'm most grateful for? And I'm most grateful for him always making the teaching the most important thing for me. And that was a consistent, no matter what was happening, and, you know, his rigorousness was that he was always demonstrating that this practice is the most important thing to be involved in. And it didn't matter what else was happening uh, uh, at all. Uh, everything else was in support of that principle. And that's really one of the roles of a, a spiritual teacher and community is to remind us that this is the most important thing we can be doing. And that's not to say that everyone has to do it in the same way uh, because uh, it's, it's just for the people who are called to do that then you want to be involved with people who are making it the most important thing. Just like when I go to a shakuhachi lesson. I mean, where else am I going to go and spend five hours in a workshop uh, just blowing, making a sound. I mean, and as I said with my teacher, uh, you know, just I, I wouldn't be here talking if I didn't have a taste for this sort of thing. I've played the same, you know, few sets of pieces for 20 years, and you know, Rob has great patience <laughs> in listening to that. But uh, it, I haven't been collecting music, just um, you know, because one piece is actually sufficient. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you said, you know, you can you can play something very simple. And I've been amazed sometimes when I go back to folk songs I haven't played in 10 years, and I play them. I say, "Wow, that sounds different than the last time I played it." You know, and that and it doesn't have to be uh, something uh, uh, elaborate. It can be nice when you combine that. And certainly, you know, my teacher's dedication was that he, you know, combines depth with technical skill, and that's and that's uh, something very special. But for our lives. You know, it's the depth that we're really trying to get at here this evening. And then it doesn't matter what we're doing in particular. It's that, you know, what we bring, that depth of feeling to every moment, that is the practice. And reminding ourselves to do that and bringing our attention back to that and keeping that kind of framework alive that this is what we're doing both gives a sense of purposefulness but also... You know, it keeps the ego busy so that uh, life can happen in the middle. Any 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 uh, questions coming at this point? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Carl. I'm reflecting on what she said about acceptance and surrender mm-hmm. and relaxation mm-hmm. and bringing in the idea of courage because the whole process seems to me to center on a willingness <coughs> to die every moment and s- surrender into the needs of the moment rather than coming from whatever uh, personal basis we have for needs and desires and things like that. Yeah, I, 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 I take your point and I agree with it. And the reason it worked for me is that when I met the night I met my teacher, within an hour, I felt this um, 
inexplicable draw mm. so that I came it was someone who uh, who as time revealed more and more and more I could trust if you don't have someone you can trust it's um, vastly more difficult mm -hmm. now there are other circumstances that could take up that slack mm -hmm. if you were um, abundantly loved and treated um, with skill as a child that can help take up the slack there are um, there are other possible circumstances as well but but really it's it's knowing that you can trust feeling that you can trust testing that you can trust um, others that really helps um, maybe you should get your shakachi out I'm going to tell, uh, tell just make one one final uh, point about this is that um, today someone came in the store someone who's given talks here before and she uh, um, was telling about uh, a trip she'd taken in November and I'd never known that you could do this but you know apparently some some people and some companies have started offering sailing ship voyages across the Atlantic sailing ship hmm. So, so she was describing, you know, this huge, like, hundred foot mast or whatever they, whatever they are, you know, and um, um, you know, it takes two weeks to go from the Canary Islands to Bermuda or wherever, wherever. I don't remember the details, but something like that. And but the thing that struck me was her description. <coughs> You're on this ship. And you're rocking back and forth for two weeks mm -hmm. with, in a company of fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a nice metaphor for, for what the Buddhists call Sangha. It's mm -hmm. kind of a nice metaphor for, you know, in, I mean, it wasn't just only benevolent rocking back and forth, there were some storms, you know. And when you, but when you're sharing a, a trip with um, people, some of whom you would cross the street to avoid if you knew they were, you know, coming, um, and yet you can you can find um, you can find open-heartedness there too with those people because um, that shared commitment, that share those shared experiences create this magic somehow and, um, and that's really important I can tell Stuart wants to keep talking because he hasn't gotten out his shakuhachi yet oh damn <laughs> I'm wrong well, that I'm wrong <laughs> we still got time <laughs> thank you so much yeah yeah of course um was the Apostle Peter extremely tall, white man? Was well, a white man? He was pretty tall. I think he's a friend of mine. <laughs> he's an unusual okay. Peter, right. <laughs> and I, he's a political activist also. That's how I okay got to know him. And I was at a 
political event um, where Peter Phillips was speaking, who was involved with Project Censored. Okay. Um, he, and he was talking about his new book. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a very interesting talk. And at some point, I can't remember at what point, and Peter does this very frequently, Peter stood up and started talking for a long time. Okay? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people... Could be the same guy. Pardon me? Could be the same guy, although he was, he was, not, he was agita- very agitated yes. when he was here. Very <laughs> agitated. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you may well know him. That way. He can be that way. And, um, and people started calling out, and I've seen this happen in people's <laughs> situations. Sit down, let him speak, you know, or whoever mm-hmm. was speaking and whatever was happening. I don't remember this particular mm-hmm. what was going on at the political event that I'm talking about right now. And I was calling out peace, peace, which didn't stop anybody from anything they were doing. <laughs> and a friend of mine, Jack Wixie, um, I was talking to him afterwards, and I noticed that Peter quieted down. And and when Jack had approached him. And I said to Jack, because I'm, I'm so interested in how things work, you know, um, what did you say to him? What did you do? And he said, I didn't say anything. I just went and put my hand on his shoulder. I just wanted to hang that on our hats or something for a second. Mm-hmm. And then Jack shared with me that he had been, that Jack and Peter had been, and I'm not surprised, at another political event sometime before that. And somehow Jack found himself standing next to a woman and perhaps they were talking about what was going on with Peter and it turned out that this was Peter's therapist and the therapist told Jack that this was Peter's homework Hmm. so perhaps he never perhaps he never used to have the whatever it takes him to speak out Hmm. Um, so these were very interesting things Hmm. to me and then I just have to share that I love Nan Kohler. I have not seen her in a gazillion, well, probably 28 years. That's wow. how old my youngest child is. Mm. <laughs> she's my midwife several uh, yeah. times, and she's so humble and one of my greatest teachers, my goodness. And, um, and I love laughter on the spiritual path. <laughs> but the last thing that I'll share is I was listening to this heart specialist who's written a book. I have this book on hold through the library. Um, and he was talking about, he was being interviewed on NPR, and he was talking about grief and stuff, and I can't remember what his, what he was grief, what he was full of grief about, but that he had discovered, or maybe it wasn't him, I don't know who discovered this, but our hearts actually change shape when we're grieving, Mm. and or when we're depressed. And I've had a lot of grief in my life. It's been a great teacher, continues to be. And um, and there's a Japanese word for it. I don't remember that word, but I think it means octopus because the heart changes shape and more like an octopus. I don't haven't seen the pictures of any of this. And then when the person is more healed from their grief or whatever the right words might be for that, I hope you can understand what I'm trying to say the heart goes back to this other shape. Hmm. And I wonder if when we have these moments that you've both been discussing of our hearts opening, if the heart changes shape then. It's conceivable, although to me the important thing is the um, reaching out of the uh, awareness of that space and capacity within ourselves. Although I, I have no reason to doubt 
that the body responds as it as we know it does to other um, experiences you know there's I have an archaeology background and there's all kinds of stuff that happens to bodies that you can identify you know habitual ways of acting and you see it in the bones mm. that people find mm. so why wouldn't other organs of the body respond in fact I, I'm, sh I'm sure it's true um, in any event perhaps Stuart can show us some uh, heart opening music what are you going to do uh, Frederick's Ranch Lane yeah probably but first I'm going to play uh, like a I'll show oh, you the. Oh, oh, he's gonna sh he's gonna do the cold yeah, the, the one no. So. So that's just a basic, you know, coke bottle sound, and you know, to your point. Mm. Yeah, you can, but I can also. You can get you. It changes as you uh, move the face around. It's a very very sensitive airstream. So then, if I, I I'll start. First, I'll tighten my butt like he always tells me to do. And you can hear the sound. The quality's actually changed a little bit. I'll lift my chest up. Start to feel my armpits contribute to the sound. And then as I go into my head, uh, uh, he talks about the hard palate balloon, the, the balloon in the uh, 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 kind of the, the mouth cavity. And then there's the nasal cavity and the kind of the back of the head that uh, also adds space to that. And then if I try to open up completely, so you can hear that you know the the sound quality changes with these. Uh, and this is just the this isn't this is not my bamboo flute. This is a plastic one that I take hiking and stuff like that. But so there's a you know our bodies make a difference you know in terms of the energy that comes through us. Do you have to warm up the bamboo ones? I know drummers who play hand drums and they have to warm up the hand A little bit. I, it's the warming up seems to be more like just having my body relax into playing more than uh, warming up the instrument. So I'm playing this a little bit cold, but... Um, but this is a piece that uh, Sturt's teacher wrote for him when he was... Uh, when he had nearly died. Yeah, I had abdominal uh, uh, crisis and uh, had surgery and stuff like that so mm -hmm. it's called Frederick's Ranch Lane which is the road we live on in Sebastopol <laughs>
end here unless there's uh, a final well there is the final thing I need to say which is that uh, we'll be having um, we're going to do one um, open um, drop-in meeting to initiate our 2019 um, practice cycle uh, one well, six days from tonight and uh, next Wednesday and um, which I guess would be the ninth and um, and then we'll be doing well, then we'll be doing a uh, um, a weekly practice meeting based on these principles that we've been talking about um, at our uh, meditation hall in our in our house at south of town here and with a with a once a month um, drop-in group so anyone's interested is welcome to check yes. it out so once a month here once a month here usually usually it'll be the first uh, Wednesday and then subsequent other meetings on Wednesdays and um, and in that we actually do specific practices as well as discussion right and then then the um, the weekly meeting we go deeper into the practice aspect right so thank you all for coming this has been a lot of fun well rob it's been about three weeks since we gave that talk and like many spiritual talks, it goes in one ear and out the other, and uh, we don't often remember what we said. But um, I'm wondering if you now, just in reflecting on this whole subject of cultivating a habit of open-heartedness, you have any reflections you want to start off with here? Well, first, I don't, I don't want to agree with uh, the idea that it goes in one ear and out the other. Just because we don't remember what we said doesn't mean that we have... Um, not retained it in some fashion or shape. But what I what I'd like to how I'd like to start this discussion is to reflect upon some of the work that I've been doing as I'm putting together a book of the teachings of Robert Daniel Ennis, our own your and my spiritual teacher. I've been looking at some of his short essays that he included over the years in our way forth Taiyu journal and have been looking at uh, how that how that relates to some of the stuff that we talked about in this talk that uh, you've just played before this discussion that we're now recording and some of that material is interesting because it points to a couple of the apparent paradoxes of spiritual practice and how spiritual practice is understood in today's world. So in the description for to, cre to create and sustain a habit of open-heartedness, we started off, or I started off because I wrote that, uh, focusing on the meme of our time being human perfection and the difficulties of, um, that, that are produced when that meme is unconsciously accepted and reproduced in our behavior and in our understanding. And it seems to me that one of the things that our teacher used to talk about was some of the, um, one of the, one, one of the important 
prerequisites for a deep and productive spiritual practice. He used to term, he termed it in some of these essays that I'm referring to that I've been editing. He refers to the necessity of hope for people to be able to, to actually do something productive to engage with spiritual practice in a way. And the, and the hope he's, he's referring to is not some generalized hope. And I'm not sure that hope back actually is the best word for it, but that's one he used in at least a couple of the essays. What he was basically talking about was the understanding or acceptance of the possibility that real transformation could take place in one's own lifetime, partly as a result of one's efforts, partly as a result of the generosity of the universe, what one of our friends often calls grace. So, so I want to reflect on that in the context of this um, uh, talk about a habit of open-heartedness. A habit of open-heartedness is something that it sounds as if anyone might be able to do. And yet one of the things I recall saying in the talk that we gave three weeks ago is precisely some of the difficulties involved in even believing that real open-heartedness is a possible manifestation that we can engage with. So there's a couple of things I'd like to uh, respond to in what you said. <laughs> One is that the what what you're the terming hope for me. Uh, no, Robert termed it hope. Right. What what Robert termed hope, and, and you were just referring to, is uh, to me more maybe better said as meaning in that there's not necessarily a specific outcome that we're hoping for that as much as there's a sense that there is, is that engaging in this kind of practice is meaningful. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to agree with your use of the word meaning here or an insertion of the word meaning here, but, I, but I, I like the word possibility better. Okay. So, um, because possibility is, is I think what we're what we're really, uh, what what Robert was trying to point to, what I'd like to point to, and that is you have to you have to believe that it's possible for you to significantly engage with practice in a way that will actually produce genuine results in your life, in your body, as you experience it, and not, not, not just some, some projection of an idea of meaning. And that's why I don't like the idea of me, using meaning here, because people think they understand meaning uh, all too readily. Okay, but I, I guess the challenge I have is that when we configure things as, as hope, or we configure even as possibility, the what we're pointing to is something that people don't really have experiential access to. So there's no real understanding of what the the possibility is, at which which means that that possibility or that hope has to be some sort of projection at any rate. 
And well, I, I don't disagree with you. I'm, I'm, we're, and when talking about language, we, we need, we're, we're, we're struggling to find a word that will, that will enlist people to, to, to a certain extent. And, and Robert used the word hope. I didn't, I already explained before you, um, uh, jumped in here, uh, saying that I don't think that's the best word, but I don't think meaning is a, is a good one either because actually, there's so much confusion about the word meaning, it seems to me, especially in spiritual practice contexts. Yeah. So, and this is to me why uh, practice is so much more important than just talking about or thinking about the ideas um, within a spiritual system, because when you engage in practice, you get a direct experience of something that it may be vague, it may be uh, 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 in the early stages incohate and not not well formed, but there's a feeling or a taste of a certain something, and then practice becomes a process of refining uh, and deepening around a very real experience that one has. But the point I'm I'm making here, and 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 I don't disagree with what you've just said, but the point I'm making is that is that you have to have a reason to do it in the first place. And you, and that's only going to be present, as, as Robert would put it, if you have what he called hope. What I'm suggesting uh, instead is if you, if you can actually credit the possibility that you can significantly and, um, and materially change the experience of your life. And that's only, that's a prerequisite, I should say, for, for engaging in the practice that you're talking about, so that's kind of the the, the point that I want to that I wanted to start with here is it's it's something that that the fourth way in general and other spiritual practices um, point to so-called often so-called esoteric practices and and the point that Robert made in in a number of his essays that I was that I've been editing is precisely that a lot of people have given up with the expectation or on the poss- in terms of the reality of the po- of a possibility that they themselves could do something and so instead they will change the outer circumstances of their lives as opposed to doing a, a process of inquiry to um, shift things internally. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reflecting now on a lot of the people that we've had on the show who are spiritual teachers or advanced practitioners, and we always start the conversations with a question about experiences in the early parts of their lives that uh, prefigured the possibility that they unfolded in their practice and their dedication. And a theme that I see with many of the people that we've talked to is that there is something, there's, there's some experience, there's some series of experiences. It might be someone, uh, uh, a parent or a friend who influenced them. It might be, uh, uh, experiences that outside the realm of normality, um, you know, in terms of visions or, uh, uh experiences, but, there's something that 
resonates with the individual, and it's around that that the the center of gravity is formed for their ultimate unfolding of the spiritual practice. And it doesn't seem to me like that's as much uh, uh, framed in terms of hope or uh, thinking in terms of possibilities or re- even reacting against a uh, a frustration in one's life, but it's like a affirmative experience that they build upon. Uh-huh, but but that only underscores the, my my insistence on uh, the word possibility because with because you you just pointed to a select bunch of people and actually we've had a few people on there who can't point to anything in particular and without casting aspersions I'll say that usually those are the those are the folks who are to my way of looking at the least interesting guests on the show. So, uh, no, naming no names. Right. But, but, right, I mean, so, yes, uh, if, if we want to construe possibility as, um, for the possibility to even register in the realm of, um, uh, one's consciousness, there typically is experiences or some, some lived experience that. That undergirds yeah. a, a conviction that it is possible to make a significant change from the center of gravity of a life that is whose whose uh, qualities and character is imbibed in the ordinary world of what what people learn in ordinary life. So I, I think part, partly uh, the reason I'm bridling against the word hope in this conversation is that I've, I've been reading uh, Stephen Jenkins's book uh, Die Wise in anticipation of a, a workshop that we're going to attend. And I was in the section where he was talking about end-of-life care and the uh, tyranny of hope. Uh, well, I, I don't have, I, I have read the, read the book, and, um, and I agree with uh, Jenkinson's critique, and I don't have a problem with critiquing the word hope. That's, as I, as I said at the very beginning before you said anything, I didn't like the word that Robert was using. I'm not going to change it um, to, to suit my uh, beliefs and so forth as in my editing process. Nevertheless, that's why I was searching for another word. And possibility is the best one I've come up with so far. So um, that you're bridling against it only means that, that you're following in my wake. <laughs> I see. Well, that's certainly possible. <laughs> so, so another thing. You are younger. Yeah. There, there, uh, another thing that we were talking about in the um, uh, recorded talk was this really the theme of practice that that um, open heartedness or living in a condition of open heartedness is a something that we can, it's not something that we do in the sense that you decide and flip a switch that I'm going to be open hearted and there you are. It is a practice in that one is reminding oneself and coming back to, as it were, the possibility of being open-hearted and making some kind of ongoing, consistent effort to move in that direction. And that over time, that kind of practice takes root and the condition and the flow of one's life begins to change as a result of that practice. Agree with that, and and the um, the thing I would point to as as part of that 
and and essentially you're talking about making a decision to practice in a certain direction. And I want to I want to point out that one of the things that that you yourself experienced, I believe, certainly I experienced to a certain extent, is that not with some kind of uh, religious fervor, but rather with a with a clarity um, that can arise from undertaking a certain direction. We we also put aside some of the things that we might have distracted ourselves with earlier in life, because our lives these days are full of distractions. Um, in the description of, of the, the pre-talk description that you read, um, it talks about um, uh, attention about on uh, the effects of drugs or video games, attention on and, and focus sure. upon career, and and other distractions and and I don't I don't mean to say that career is an inappropriate activity to focus attention on, but there is a way to overdo that, as there is as, as there are ways. And I'm not su suggesting that video games are inherently um, harmful or drugs or are inherently harmful or a, a, a misdirection, but people often fall into the trap of putting too much attention on, on what I'm calling distractions from, um, from this other possibility. I return to that word. Yeah, well, that, then that was a, a theme that we brought up again in the uh, discussion that, that the function of a spiritual community or a spiritual school is to remind one of the possibility that one may be trying to uh, deepen within their lives. Yeah, one of, one of the things that 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 we all that we didn't really talk about too much in the talk itself, even though it's mentioned in the description of the talk, is are the industries of personal growth and transformation, and how. Um, when there's a focus on making money from those things, that the that 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 leaves so-called consumers with a bunch of misimpressions about how the how creating a, a genuine habit of open-heartedness can actually proceed. And so I'll just reiterate some of that stuff here, which is to say that it's not something that you get from a weekend. It's not something that you get from um, some kind of short-term course or um, or short-term focus. When when we talk about spiritual practice, we're talking about something that is the essence of daily life. Yeah. And and unless we look at it that way, unless we configure it that way, there's this danger that that you're turning what could be possible, you know, possible supports for the, the development of a practice into into yet another form of entertainment. Yeah, I think there's two different dimensions of this that we should distinguish because we have friends who have the mind that you shouldn't charge for 
spiritual teaching. And there's friends who have affected a uh, consultant model for spiritual teaching. I wouldn't say they've affected it. They've adopted it. Yeah, well, they, yeah, they put it into effect is what I mean. Uh, and the point I'm making is that the, in those cases, uh, in both of those cases, as long as the relationship between the uh, person performing the teaching function and the student is an understanding that it's a long-term process that requires consistent effort and that the teacher has a level of integrity in which they are um, willing to, you know, push someone away if they're not uh, really uh, making use of the situation appropriately and to give appropriate, you know, good feedback to people. I think that that can be just fine, even if there's a uh, monetary change of hands, because we live in a society where there isn't the kind of structures available that there might have been in, um, you know, ancient India or, or ancient China. Well, I, I understand. I mean, what you're what you're saying more generally is that context matters, and and people. In our, in our society, unless unless you want to be the sort of teacher that people meet on the street, who um, who our own teacher, as a, to whom our own teacher is indebted, in one in one case that he spoke about to to us and others, that's that's one thing. But 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 people need um, to pay for pay for the practice, but it doesn't have to be only. A monetary exchange. But then the, the other thing I want to distinguish, though, is just what you were saying, that there's the transactional weekend workshop mentality. And even if that's given away for free, even if you have a teacher, as some um, of the modern neo-Advaita Vedanta teachers have uh, done at times, where just sitting with the teacher is sufficient to wake someone up, uh, I think that that is very misguided. If people think that a weekend is going to transform them or that an experience is going to transform the inertia of a lifetime of habits of behaving in a particular way, I think they're self-deluded. And it then just goes to the mentality of collecting or grabbing something, as you um, say in the description, where you have a habit of grasping after perfection or grasping after change. Grasping after bliss, joy, and satisfaction. Right, and then the fruits of spiritual practice, which in a real practice are sort of incidental, then become the aim and the goal, and it uh, becomes, as uh, Chogyam Trumpa once called it, spiritual materialism. You're going after a certain something, and you're collecting something. Right, so so once again, I'll, I'll, I return to this description uh, pre-talk description that we had where um, where it's written a genuine expansion of consciousness requires time, commitment, sweat discomfort and persistence so um, that's not to say that it, that, it, that it's all uh, heavy going of course there are, there are moments of and usually unexpected moments of this sense of vast expansion of consciousness, vast expansion of awareness, vast expansion um, into realms of bliss and joy that may not have been uh, um, uh, present um, in awareness uh, prior to that, but it also requires a commitment to stick through the discomfort, um, engage in producing the sweat, 
and persist throughout both the ups and downs, the highs and lows, because, of course, as, as many traditions point out, the highs can be distractions as well as the lows, impediments. Okay. So another, another area that I wanted to go back to that in terms of what might drive someone or what, what, what might inspire someone to seek spiritual practice in a different category than the self-perfecting um, mindset that we have is the turn of phrase we used in the um, description of the gnawing sense of restlessness that's operating just below the surface of awareness. But I think that, that we, I find this with a lot of people and I, and I, find this with myself uh, if I'm, you know, distant from my, let's say, my practice sensibility, that there, there's a uh, kind of a restlessness that people feel. And I think that this is uh, uh, important in, as a way of kind of understanding uh, suffering in the, you know, the Buddhist sense of the term, that suffering doesn't necessarily mean that we are in pain and uh, uh, really sad. Uh, but there's a kind of a anxiety, a restlessness that I think most of our lives uh, uh, in this society produces where below we don't really know what the cause of it is, but that we're kind of uh, always a little bit uh, on edge, like we've forgotten something, there's something to do, we're missing out on something. And I think a lot of the uh, compulsive engagement and habits, as you said, like video games or, you know, trying to, you know, uh, uh, numb oneself in um, uh, drugs or alcohol or movies or whatever. These are all ways, that responses that we have to this uh, restlessness that we feel. I agree. And what I find useful about practice and, and meditative practices are useful from this is that it, if one can develop the taste for doing this, uh, the um, self-observation or meditation, mindfulness practices, turn one's attention to this functioning or this restlessness because one begins to see and can resolve more clearly the thought, the underlying current of thought that's running constantly that is always kind of throwing us off or distracting us in one form or another. Uh, I agree. I, I also, though, want to want to point to the danger of of how people can confuse a response to a, a sense of restlessness with, well, I'll fix it by being a good girl or a good boy, and I'll be a good girl and a good boy, maybe depending on the person, by engaging in meditative practices, by engaging in you know all the things that on the surface seem to invite one to do apparently the same things that someone who has a, a different aim or direction might undertake. And then I want to suggest that there may or may not be um, similar results depending on the individual. And, and of course, it's complicated by the fact that there's not, it's not black and white for anyone with regard to either characteristic or direction that I'm pointing to here. That is to say, people can can undertake 
being compulsively good um, and produce and end up with a with a result which is um, perhaps leading ending up um, eventually in a situation that transcends simply being compulsively good. That's that's a possibility, uh, and I think there are examples of it. Uh, but also, um, we we have to realize that if we're engaging transactionally with the universe in a sense that okay, if I do A, B, and C, then you're going to give me D uh, awakening or something like that. Um, but that can be um, a, a problem. Yeah, I, but I'm not sure that, I don't know how realistic uh, uh, that concern is. Uh, and the reason I say that is that... Which, the latter one? Yeah, I mean, if I think, I agree that if you think of it, like if I do X, Y, and Z, then, you know, I'll, all my problems will be resolved. And you hold that to a belief, I, I think that that, may be misguided it may it may create the context for you to actually take a step to do a or b or c Mm -hmm. but i do believe that the lived experience of doing a b and c will change someone and will open something in someone it doesn't guarantee that someone will resonate with that because i think that is a function of individual choice and preference and um, uh, disposition to go deeper. Well, I'll just relate a, a personal ex- experience. I mean, I, I met someone, this was years ago, who had engaged rigorously in meditation for 30 years and complained that he, his life was essentially no different. I mean, I suppose he might have been doing something else, you know, Less uh, less beneficial to the world um, when he uh, was instead meditating. So so maybe there was a benefit there. But 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 that sort of thing can happen. So I, I guess that I you told me the story before. I think the question I have is: uh, Were you able to interrogate more closely where this person was coming from? In other words, um, first of all, did he meditate uh, in the context of a teacher? actually giving feedback no. on the meditation. No. And second, you know, someone just goes into meditation, but they spend all their time thinking. I, I actually don't, don't think that's, that was his situation, that he spent all his time thinking. That's that. I, I, did, I didn't, you know, ask uh, details about why he had this complaint. And, um, and that, would not be supported by what he by what he said. I don't think he had. He certainly didn't have the kind of um, teacher scrutiny as I as I recall, at least these, these many years later. Um, he didn't he didn't talk about having the kind of scrutiny from a teacher or or persistent feedback from a teacher that might have helped. But he was. And, you know, uh, and I use the, the term advisedly religious in his adherence to the practice. Right. Well, that, that sort of reminds me a bit of um, uh, what we heard from Hal Blacker from when he was quoting his Advaita Vedanta teacher that, um, you know, meditation is good to a certain point, 
but mm-hmm. there's still the teaching and there's still a frame or a context that is important to internalize mm-hmm. in, ter- in terms of um, taking actions beyond just meditation mm-hmm. that can facilitate a deeper growth. So we have just uh, maybe about uh, a minute left or so. So uh, I'm just wondering if you have any closing uh, words of wisdom. Capstone. Not, not, not really, except that um, I, I continue to maintain that creating and sustaining a habit of open-heartedness is one, I think, useful way to characterize the direction and goal of a spiritual practice that I would hold out as one of the greatest human achievements. And um, further, that creating and sustaining such a habit is the product of a lifetime of effort and um, is not a is not like a there's, there's not there's not a Rubicon there's exactly. not an end. Yeah, there's not an end over, over which you cross and then you're then you're there. Yeah. And, and I think the, the last comment I would make on this is that as I reflect on what it means to create and sustain a habit of open heartedness, part of it is also the habit of saying life, a yes to what life offers up uh, and being present to and fully embracing what the, the moment serves up and living our lives fully. How, how open-hearted of you. <laughs> well, that was very open-hearted of you. I think we have possibly come to the end of our uh, uh, show. So uh, Impossible. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> because we're still going on. We're still going on. All right. Until next time. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, January 3rd, entitled, To Create and Sustain a Habit of Open-Heartedness. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature an in-studio conversation with the very Reverend Donald P. Richmond, a priest oblate with the Reformed Episcopal Church and Order of St. Benedict. He is a graduate of several colleges and seminaries, as well as the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies and the Maryville Ecclesiastical Institute. Having trained in Byzantine iconography, Father Richmond has a keen interest in the intersection of theology and liturgical arts. A widely published author, Father Richmond has published extensively on the Ancient Future Faith Network, and elsewhere also, under either the Abbey or the Inner Monk. Of note most recently is Father Richmond's article on the New Monasticism, Under Authority, the Challenge of Evangelical Monasticism. Tune in for that show on Saturday, February 2nd from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff will ha- be having its monthly meeting on the first Wednesday of February at 7.30 p.m. That's February 6th at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sevastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain co- cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. 
No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So, in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. at Mini Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. And this week on Thursdays at Mini Rivers, I'm Still Alive from Fear to Forgiveness with Fran Carbonaro. That's Thursday, January 31st at 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Join Fran Carbonaro and guest musicians for an evening of poetry and music from her recently released CD, I'm Still Alive. This evening's presentation will focus on the divine intervention which came through dreams, visions, and a rite of passage while facing the profound effects of complex trauma from childhood familial violence. Francis Weller, author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and The Sacred Work of Grief, writes, Fran Carbonaro has offered us an intimate and fierce portrait of someone who has faced the difficult territory of trauma and loss. She has taken the leaden weight of suffering and through her devotion has transmuted what was once saturated with shame and sorrow into a healing tincture for those of us who have been similarly touched by abuse. Her poems and songs carry an alchemical power, elemental and true, capable of touching our most vulnerable places with compassion. These are sacred words calling us back to our wholeness. Fran Carbonaro is a local voice teacher who has taught privately in Sonoma County for 35 years. Fran works with both budding and seasoned singers of all ages in discovering, honing, and saving their voices. Her focus is uncovering the true voice by bridging somatic awareness with resonant vitality and articulation. She also assists trans women in finding their authentic voice. Over the years, Fran has appeared on stage in the county as a singer, actor, and poet. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. 